Good morning again. Welcome again uh, to those of you who are watching via live stream. Uh, a special uh, welcome uh, to you as well. Thank you very much. We're looking this morning at Mark's Gospel. We're in Mark chapter 7. We are returning to Mark's Gospel after a break. Uh, I was out of town, so a special thanks to our uh, pastors and our elders and deacons. But we return now to Mark 7, verse uh, 24. Little theologians, happy to have uh, you here with us this morning. If you could draw for me as I preach a picture of the kinds of food that a dog might get off the table. It just sounds ungodly to do that on a Sunday morning worship service. It is, however, that kind of passage. It's a striking passage. We're in Mark chapter 7, verse uh, 24. We're looking at Jesus' ministry uh, among uh, Gentiles. We'll, we'll be there for the next couple of weeks. Very, very little teaching in these passages. We are meant to witness what's happening. Very little teaching. In fact, really no direct teaching of Jesus over the next few passages. Mark chapter 7, beginning at verse 24. Uh, First of all, let's go to God in prayer. Would you join me? Father, we ask that you would settle our hearts, that we in your grace would have the ability to meditate upon your word as we read and as we listen to it preached. Apply to us your word by your spirit. Amen. So Mark chapter 7, beginning at verse uh, 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. He said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is the word of our Lord. I want to ask you for a moment as we begin here to think how awful it is that not everyone has an opportunity to hear the gospel and believe. We could break apart that tragedy in a few ways. Isn't it awful to know that not everyone who hears the gospel actually believes in the gospel? That's tragic. Here, an emissary of the king has come and proclaimed the king's message, and yet they don't believe. It's also a tragedy that many Christians do not share the gospel in words or in their lives. That, too, is a tragedy. But how about this? Isn't it awful to know that not everyone may even have a chance to hear the gospel? 
I mean, Paul in his ministry in Romans chapter 15, he said that he desired to go and preach the gospel where it had not been preached before. Boy, it's a tragedy just to think that not everyone will actually hear the gospel. And has everyone heard the gospel? In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus tells his disciples, make disciples of all the nations. And the word for nations, their ethne, is not a political entity. Make disciples of all the countries. It's make disciples of all the people groups. Everyone, we might translate it woodenly, who is not a Jew. Everyone who is a Gentile. Anthropologists say, just so you know, that there are some 17,000 people groups on our globe. Missions agencies say that an unreached people group is any people group that has fewer than 5% professing Christians. The Joshua Project says that there are actually, according to their count, 7,400 unreached people groups. The International Missions Board of the Southern Baptist Convention suspect that there may be as many as 3,000 people groups that are actually entirely unengaged with the gospel. No gospel activity in their midst at all. These are remarkable numbers. Uh, 7,000 unreached people groups, 3,000 uh, people groups completely unengaged with the gospel. There's a tragedy. Not only do not everyone who hears the gospel actually believes in the gospel, but not everyone has heard the gospel. But the tragedy that this passage is about is a little bit different. This passage illustrates that nobody who does hear the gospel is somehow disqualified to receive it. Nobody, nobody who actually hears the gospel of Jesus Christ can say, that's for someone else. It's not for me. I'm disqualified from that good news. Nobody can say that. No person is barred from the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not even a person from an obscure people group for whom you've never heard of. But also not even a hated foreigner. You see, the next 25 verses or so take place in Syria and Lebanon. Over the past few passages, Jesus has been de debating with the holiest people in Israel, with the Pharisees. So too has Jesus been teaching his disciples. But here, Jesus is uh, going into a body of people that are not just neutral, they're a body of people, well, who not just the Pharisees hate them, but the disciples themselves struggle to have any affection for these people. However, no person is barred from the working of the power of the gospel. Now, that's what this passage is about, but it springs to our minds something that is surprising as Christians. It's surprising to us as believers that the gospel could go out and impact people that we may especially despise. There's that kind of surprise for those who are believers. And there's a different kind of surprise for those who are not believers. The surprise that, well, you heard, not even they in their sin, in their filth, not even they are barred from receiving the power of the gospel. No person is barred from this power to save.
We want to look at this passage uh, very quickly, uh, looking at three parts, just making our way as I normally do. But let me just state at the very beginning that this is a really tricky passage to find any application in. And that's going to be true next week and the week after as well. It's hard to find an application in this passage. But because I'm a skilled pastor, (laughs) that in fact is not true. There aren't explicit applications in this passage, but I think there's implicit applications that can be drawn from what Jesus is teaching, particularly when we consider that what is happening in this passage, even though it's not explicit teaching, it's something that's witnessed by the disciples. And so I want to close with some applications. We want to begin just in this first verse, verse 24, it kind of sets the, the setting. I mean, look what Mark tells us. Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And, and, and it's, it's, it's rather uh, strong, verse 24. The word for uh, went away is a strong word. It's almost as if Jesus was in a rush. He deliberately uh, went away. And these cities that are, that are mentioned, Tyre and Sidon, they, they actually represent a region that is north and west of Galilee. The Tyre itself used to be called Phoenicia, and so this is the region of Phoenicia. Now, it's not just any region. That very word would stand out to any Jew, a Pharisee or one of Jesus' disciples. Because in religious history, this region was the home of Ahab's chosen wife, Jezebel. She was a, a princess of the Sidonians. Well, that can't possibly be good. And in more recent political history, that was uh, something from the ninth century B.C. That's a long time ago. But to be sure, that would be enough for the word Phoenicia to Uh, conjure up bad imagery in a Jew's mind. But in more recent political history, less than a hundred years ago, before Rome secured rule over the region, uh, Tyre actually fought against the Jews as they were fighting for their own independence. Uh, One Jewish historian of the era says that the inhabitants of Tyre are our bitterest enemies. Our bitterest enemies. And the whole region, this doesn't help at all, the whole region uh, of uh, Tyre and Sidon was actually very uh, wealthy. There are scriptures that tell us that the uh, silver was like dust and that the gold was like the mud. That's what the prophet Zechariah says. Ezekiel says that this is the mighty nation on the coast. They're rich, they're arrogant, they're a terror to their neighbors. So in religious history... There's a bad vibe with this region, but also in recent political history, and then they're all wealthy, which doesn't help. And to be sure, the entire region was not only not following God, but running away from God. The region was known for its paganism. Even if you could find paganism in Palestine and in Judea, which you could, concentrated in Phoenicia was the kind of paganism, well, That was the most extreme expression of paganism, says one commentator. So think about uh, Jesus deliberately getting up and going into this region. Presumably his disciples are uh, with him. And not only that, Jesus goes into this region and Mark says what? He says he entered a house and he didn't want anyone to know. Strange. He seems to be making it a bit of a habitation. Matthew, by the way, doesn't say that he entered a house. Matthew, uh, in his Gospels, the only other place we find this scene. 
But Jesus, he enters a house, and and his desire is to actually be uh, secretive, to escape. And uh, maybe it's the religious leaders. Remember, he's been talking to the Pharisees, and maybe he's made them really angry, and he is, uh, uh, as it were, escaping from them. Uh, Herod Antipas believed that Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected, and it could be that Herod, he's looking to do that deed twice kill Jesus again if he thinks that he's the resurrected John the Baptist. It could be simply Jesus is just trying to get away from the crowds. But if we wonder what Jesus is doing in verse 17 in Mark chapter 7, you can just scan up. In verse 17, I mean, Jesus was in a house there as well. And when he was in a house there, what was he doing? He's teaching his disciples. So he's going to a different house, and maybe he's teaching his disciples. Mark doesn't seem to think we need to know. The house seems to be a house that is sympathetic to Jesus in some way. If Jesus is seeking secrecy to escape, um, presumably the owner of the house is uh, recognizing that game plan. It could actually be that it's a Jewish house. He surely doesn't want his whereabouts to be known. And so it would seem this is a sympathetic home. You know, In Matthew's account, uh, there's no mention of a house, but Matthew makes it very clear that these uh, disciples would not tolerate this woman, that this woman came and Matthew says the disciples were immediately offended. And so if they're that sensitive about this Syrophoenician woman, it's likely that they're in a house that is more friendly, maybe one owned by a Jew. But make no mistake about this, Jesus, he's in what would be to the eyes of most, the territory of the enemies. The Pharisees actually quoted an apocryphal book that would be uh, a part of their scriptures, uh, a book from a, a, a quote from a book from the Psalms of Solomon, which are not the Psalms of Solomon. They're apocryphal. They don't belong in Holy Scripture. But the Pharisees would go to this book because there uh, it would be understood that the Messiah's job was to come in and to uh, actually get rid of all of the Gentiles, that the Messiah would come and the Messiah would cleanse Jerusalem from the nations, expel the sinners, rub out their arrogance, crush their supporters like wet clay. That's how the Pharisees felt about this region in which Jesus and his disciples are. But that's also how the disciples would feel. Just take just just a moment to think if there's anyone in your estimation it would be like that. The gospel ought to go out and be proclaimed to everyone. But who in your mind are the kind of people whom you suspect, well, the gospel can go to them, but let's not get our hopes up. I mean, honestly, it's them. Well, who is that them in your mind right now? You don't have to say it. Praise God for that, right? But who is that them? That you think, you know, maybe uh, everyone can be saved, but I'm not sure about the prisoners in a maximum security prison. These are the worst of the worst. Maybe not them. Or maybe not a boardroom, boardroom full of greedy capitalists. Maybe the gospel's not meant for them. You can preach it to them, but it's not going to mean anything. They're greedy. Maybe it's the staff of a progressive magazine. Maybe it's a Marxist bureaucracy. Maybe it's a collection of artists like a ballet company. You can preach the gospel to them all you want, but 
They're so entrenched. There's something about them that it just would be an absolute miracle if any of them said yes to Jesus. Well, that may be a hard image to conjure in your heads, but I'm asking you to try that because most of the Pharisees expected the Messiah to deal with the kinds of people one finds in Tyre and Sidon in a very special way. Get rid of them. The gospel's not for them. Well, Strolling upon this scene, actually more than strolling upon this scene, is the beggar. And so we go from the setting to the beggar beginning at verse 25. We don't here have a chance visitor. We have this woman who seems to be hunting for Jesus. I mean, she comes upon the scene, Mark says, immediately. Uh, She comes to Jesus. She targets him. Almost as if she doesn't care where he lives, she will find Jesus. But keep this in mind. She's heard of Jesus. In Mark chapter 3... Mark says that there are these crowds that were gathering around Jesus. And Mark explicitly, in Mark chapter 3, verse 8, he says that some of those people that are gathering around Jesus are from where? Tyre and Sidon. And so uh, this woman, she's heard about Jesus, something about him. And somehow she's heard that Jesus is nearby and she targets Jesus. She finds him. Well, the woman, Mark tells us, is a Syrophoenician. It's the only place in Holy Scripture where that word shows up, Syrophoenician. Matthew says simply, simply that uh, she is a Canaanite. Mark adds that she's a Gentile. I've already mentioned that in Matthew's account, the disciples uh, are viscerally hostile towards her. There's something about her. They just, they just know something about her, that she is the kind of person that Jesus shouldn't be with. By the way, how might they know this? In Matthew, I know I'm preaching from Mark, not Matthew, but in Matthew's account, how might the disciples just know that this is someone that Jesus should not be with? I mean, it could be they're just angry because she's interrupted Jesus. But everyone seems to know who this woman is. And notice what Mark says. Mark says that she is a Syrophoenician by birth. How would he know that? Well, she professes faith in Jesus, becomes part of the church, and presumably she shares that. That's how Peter knew, presumably. But there's something about her that everyone knows. It's not just that she's a woman. They know that she is one of the hated enemy. And as she comes, she makes a request of Jesus, how forceful she is. By the way, when she uh, begs to Jesus, when she uh, asks Jesus, literally that word for beg is to ask. In the Greek language, there's two ways to ask. One way is the more selfish way. It's to have an, an emergency and you need this emergency dealt with quickly. But the other way is more intimate. It's a more submissive way to ask or to beg. By the way, when Jesus asks of the Heavenly Father to be with him, he always uses the intimate word for begging, and that's the word that this woman uses. You know, Matthew says that she addresses Jesus in a specific way. She says, O Lord, and she says, have mercy. And Mark, he doesn't, he's not that explicit, but Mark is here letting us know that, you know, this woman, there's something going on in her heart. She's submissive to Jesus. She's sincere and earnest as she approaches Jesus. And and not only this, as she comes, we are to understand those things about her such that when verse 27 rolls around, we're, we're just floored. Look what Jesus says in verse 27. Man, let the children be fed first 
It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Can you imagine the disciples around Jesus? If they're not saying it, they're probably not saying it. They're rooting for Jesus. Yeah, go. What he said, go get her. Absolutely, Jesus. It's so hard to know what Jesus means here. Jesus is most certainly capturing a reality from the Old Testament that God, he's unfolded his story of redemption through a family and through that family, through a nation under King David and through that nation, even in exile, a broken, tattered nation such that the nation would come back after the exile and yet they would still be God's people. This is very clear in prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Haggai and Zechariah. And Jesus is tapping into that story of redemption. This is indeed how God works. He's working through his people, his nation, his family. But he's not stopping there. It's almost as if what Jesus is is saying to his disciples is he's saying, you remember, yes, that God, he works through his family, that that family would be a blessing to the entire world. You may neglect me even though I am right here with you, but she who is not with me sees that the blessing to you is a blessing to her. Why would she see that so much more clearly than you? Certainly Jesus is doing that in verse 27. But he still calls her a dog. I mean, here, you know, Mark 7.25 or 7.27, this is the most offensive statement of Jesus in Scripture. There are unusual instances in uh, first century Judaism where the word, word dog would be positive. You know, uh, refer to humility or service uh, or refer to watchfulness. But like 98.9% of the time, dog's bad. Don't want to be called a, a dog in first century Judaism. They're associated with uncleanness because they ate garbage. Sometimes it referred to people who are under the curse of God. Sometimes it was simply uh, a reference to those who are useless. Dogs are associated with wretchedness and curse. Why? Let me just say right now, I don't actually have an answer for why Jesus uses the word dog. I don't, but uh, the best commentators don't either. It's striking, this word. But there's this. It's small, I'll admit. Jesus, he doesn't use the normal word for dog. He uses a diminutive form of that word. He doesn't use the word that would apply to a dog of the street, but he uses the word that would apply to a dog that's a house pet. I, I I know it's small. But Jesus does use that word. It's almost a toned-down word for dog. And the woman herself, she repeats that toned-down version of the word dog. It's almost as if Jesus, he's trying to show us something else. He's using the word dog, and he's being striking, but he wants us to see something. Jesus, he is taking this word that was especially adopted by the rabbis to refer to those who are unloved, those who are the deplorables. And Jesus, he uses that word that he might be able to replay that trope before the rabbis. Because for them, that was a very well-known distinction. Dogs are not Jews, and they're not loved by God. And Jesus, he knows they think this. And I suspect that he's employing their vocabulary to show them that he knows that they think this. But just when we think that this woman can beg no more, she begs, she falls before Jesus. In verse 28, she says, yes, Lord. 
He has her affection. Yes, Lord. It's small. And we might write it off, especially if we're one of those who feel as though uh, this is the kind of person not likely to be saved. But she says, yes, Lord. And she actually embraces Jesus' term for the word dog. And she says, even the dogs. Yes, Lord, as you say, but even those so named dogs, the ones under the table, they eat the children's crumbs. She physically bows before Jesus, but her heart falls before Jesus as well. That should just be a surprise to us. You can see where I'm going with the applications. Just, just give me 30, 40 more seconds. There are applications. But I want you to understand that what this woman says when she says to Jesus that the crumbs are for the children, Jesus uses the word for children that refers to biological children. And she uses the word for children that refers to biological children plus servants of the household. She physically falls before our Lord and Savior, but her heart falls before our Lord and Savior as well. She physically falls, but she almost grabs her own heart and pushes it deeper into the dirt, falls on her face where she can see clearly under the table, and then pushes her heart deeper into the ground. Jesus says in verse 29, as we're making our way, we want to close real quick, but we've gone from the setting to the beggar. Now we're going from the beggar to the gift. Verse 29, uh, you may go your way. The ESV is horrible in verse 29. It doesn't say you may go your way. It says go your way. It's a command. But there you have it. You may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. In verse 30, she, uh, she uh, obeys Jesus. Of course she would. She is a follower of his, a child of his, a servant of his. She obeys the command. In verse 30, she went home and found the child lying in bed. And just in case you didn't get it, the demon's gone as well. It's such an economic story. So few verses. But in verse 29, Jesus says for this statement... For this statement, you may go on your way. It's not statement, it's for this word. For this word, you may go on your way. This word is a word of humility, self-deprecation. Listen, Christian, you understand what's happening in verse 29, right? She's saved by grace and grace alone. For this word, a word's nothing. She has a a, a tremendous need and she falls before him and pushes her heart down. And Jesus says for this word, that's how salvation happens. That's how the gospel works. We're saved by grace. And as we read this as Christians, I believe there are actually three applications here. And, And again, they're not explicit, but I want to leave you with something. The first application is this. Just think for a moment how it is that over time, we Christians ourselves lose this posture. That we come humbly before God, but we come humbly in a physical gesture only. We preserve our heart. We bow before Jesus, whom we say is our Lord and our King, but we're not pushing our hearts down. 
I think there's an application there. Over time, we as Christians, we lose this spiritual posture before our King. The second application is this. Let's let's not expect the gospel only to work with people whom we are disposed towards. If the gospel is the power of God for salvation, and we know that it is, Romans chapter 1, if it is that power and if it is God's power, scan your heart well for those people you think are never, ever going to say yes to the gospel of Jesus. They're too far gone. Let's not expect the gospel to only work with people with whom we're disposed towards And the third application, you're going to have to walk with me here. How strange might it have been for this woman to, upon professing faith in Jesus Christ, becoming a part of the community of the church. The disciples could tell immediately she was a Syrophoenician. After her first or second or third or twelfth or thirtieth year in the life of the church, would they still recognize? Yeah, they would. Imagine how strange in Jesus' eyes the local church must look if anyone can say yes to the gospel. Are there deplorables here in East Brainerd, Hamilton County, Catoosa County? Folks that wouldn't be on our list as those likely to say yes to the gospel, but nobody is barred from saying yes to the gospel. So what might a church look like if that's true? Again, they're not explicit applications, they're implicit applications. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for our brother Mark and Peter uh, sharing by the lead of the Holy Spirit uh, this uh, story in the life of Jesus, a picture of his work. Father, would we walk with this picture in our hearts? Would you apply it to us by your Spirit? Would we carry it into this week? In Jesus' name, amen.